Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. How are you doing today, Mark? Great, Kim. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Uh, first article that we want to talk about and topic that we want to bring up was an article from a website that deals with vegetarian and vegan eating called Live Kindly. And this was right up my alley because it's all about wine and food pairings, but about how to pair wines with meatless meals. And and I thought that the philosophy going into this article was, was very well thought out, really incorporated a lot of the ideas that we use when we talk about thoughtful food and wine pairings. And the author really, really knew their stuff. So I was totally impressed with this article. Yeah, and you're right, Kim. It is right up your alley because I'm a meat and potatoes guy. I'm not a foodie <laughs> like experiment. you. But I love of talking food and wine pairing with you. So I think there's a lot we have to discuss with this. A lot of times we talk about pairing of food and we always have this thing about what is a perfect pairing. And often we say if if the food doesn't dominate, the wine doesn't dominate, then the, the pairing is a perfect pairing. It's very rare. It is. But it's, it's about trying to make the experience be more than the sum of its parts. So the food might taste good, the wine might taste good, but then if you put them together, they end up tasting better. And that is my goal when I I try to aim for a good food and wine pairing. It doesn't have to like blow your socks off, but if you have your beverage and your meal and you have them together and they just both make the other one just taste a little bit better and make, you know, different elements of the dish shine or elements of the wine shine, then then I feel like it's done its job. And that just makes me super happy. They mentioned plant-based food groups, but one of the great points I thought they said in this article was that it also matters how you prepare these right food groups because you could fry it, uh, you could roast it, and that affects how you want to pair it with a wine. Right. And I thought that this was a really smart way that they introduced this concept because for those of us that are not vegetarians, we tend to think about the protein. So we think, think about the protein first when we come when it comes to building a, a meal or building a dish, and then we work in those other elements. And it's not necessarily that way if you are building a vegetarian meal or you have a vegetarian or vegan diet. So she says in this article that in the plant based world of culinary techniques, you're, you're looking at five different categories. You're looking at fruits, vegetables, grains, fats, and legumes. So not only incorporating those different categories, but that paying attention to what sauces you're using, which is also important when you're doing meat-based meals too. And I, I always think about Thanksgiving when it comes to this. It's like, it's not about the turkey, it's about the sides and the sauces. But back to this, then what you said before where preparation method. So thinking about your ingredients, thinking about your sauces and then thinking about your preparation. So let's talk, Kim, about the food groups that they mentioned. First was leafy greens and me being the non-foodie, leafy greens, I'm just thinking lettuce, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there's more to it, right? Yeah, leafy green 
greens and salad based courses, greens based courses. So it's not just a salad. There are lots of other greens out there in the world, some of them that are sweeter, some of them that are more bitter. But I think the overarching theme here is that there will usually be some sort of a dressing because you're not going to just eat your greens plain. So something that is a dressing that will have a an acid element to it. I know sometimes acid is a bad word when it comes to wine, but you want a vinegar or you want a fruit juice. Is it lemon juice? Is there maybe something with orange or grapefruit, balsamic vinegar, other things like that? So it's the, you, you're going to want something to perk up those greens. So when you are talking about salads and you're talking about having a vinaigrette with those salads, then you need to match a wine that is not going to fall flat with the acids of the dressing. So that's why we often recommend a high acid white or a rosé to go with a salad or go with a, a dish that's based on greens. And I always agree with that as far as the acidity. And they talk here first about your, your favorite bubbly sparkling wine goes great, as well as whites like Sauvignon Blanc, which has that nice crisp acidity to it. Right. So I totally agree with this pairing. Um, it's one I always, my go-to for salads in general. Me too. Me too. The next category would be roasted vegetables. So again, now we're getting into heartier ingredients, but also paying attention to the preparation method. So when you roast vegetables, you caramelize a lot of the sugars in the vegetables and you concentrate the flavors. So think about the difference between a baked potato and a boiled potato. That baked potato is going to have more earthy flavors. It's going to be richer than the kind of lame wateriness that you get out of a boiled potato. So think about concentration of flavor and their suggestion is pairing richer whites with roasted vegetables. So this is sort of the counterpoint to the, the salad. So you have those light crisp whites and rosés with your salad course or with a, a dish that's based on greens. And then you have your heavier whites, your richer whites, your Chardonnays, some of your things from central Spain, maybe some northern Italian whites that are that are richer and that can stand up to the vegetables and that the vegetables won't overwhelm. They also mentioned aromatic whites too, which mm -hmm. I can see that because when you roast something, like you said, Kim, you get more aromatics out yeah. of the, the vegetables. I tend to stick aromatic whites in the richer white category. So something like Viognier or Gewürztraminer, where when you stick your nose in the glass for those wines, like pow, you're hit with these floral aromas, fruity aromas, spicy aromas. Uh, they're not wallflowers. Those are wines that really stand up for themselves. What about reds with the roasted vegetable, Kim? Oh, Pinot Noir. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, they, would you say when you roast, a lot of times you, you use some sort of spice too for a roasted It depends. Yeah. You know, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. It depends on what I'm making. So when I do, I have a recipe for a roasted ratatouille where you, instead of sauteing all the vegetables, you roast them in the oven and I'll throw like a lot of herbs in there that then the aromas and the flavors kind of merge while they're cooking. So for that, it's like rosemary and a lot of garlic and stuff like that. So you certainly can incorporate herbs or you can go in a different direction and depending on the cuisine that you're making, there's a lot of different spices that could work in there. So a lot of Indian spices work really well with roasted vegetables like squash and sweet potato, onion, things like that, you know, different curry spices, a whole whole world of yeah. things out there. When I saw the roasted at first, I was thinking right away something that maybe this new trend as far as a bourbon aged, barrel aged wine, either white or red, or something with oak to mm -hmm. go with that roasty, the toasty type of thing. Right. So you're probably thinking, 
eating like fall vegetables for these, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a potato, roasted right. potato. Okay. So roast, Mr. Like potato. Squash, squash, potatoes. Right. Yeah. But then you can also think of using more summer vegetables or spring vegetables. And you can do the same technique just with a whole, it doesn't have to be root vegetables. It can be zucchini. It can be leeks. It can be onions. Okay. That's a root. Well, you, can go, <laughs> you can go so many different directions because you're yeah. talking different weights. And tomatoes, you know, roasted tomatoes are, are wonderful, you know, all sorts of things. But with the end result is that you have this concentration of flavor, this slight caramelization, and then you can use these and incorporate them into other dishes as well. So next they talked about fruits, pairing fruits with wine. Yeah. So because I'm not a vegetarian, I I don't often think about incorporating a lot of fruit into my my dishes, but I I really had to kind of sit back and think about this one and be like, huh, okay, yeah, this this works for me. And their philosophy in this article about food and wine pairings was like totally on par with mine. So I, you know, I found myself nodding a lot. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. And it's because their suggestion is sweeter wines when you're doing fruits because you don't want the wine to be drier than the dish. So if you have a sweet dish, then you need to have a wine with it that is just as sweet as the food. And that's kind of one of those rules that I live by when it comes to food and wine pairings. And they talked about dried or stewed fruits mm-hmm. a lot in this. And I thought it was interesting about the dessert route, but a lot of times fruits I go to with sparkling, yeah. you know, with fruit as well. So I, they didn't really go the sparkling route, maybe because they mentioned it with, with the leafy greens. Yeah. And I tend to go with those off-dry whites for something like this. So when I think of a couple of uh, dishes that I know that have stewed fruits in them, I'm thinking like Turkish cuisine. I'm thinking some Indian things where you've got, or North African, there's a lot of like stewed prunes and apricots with nuts and rice and raisins and things like that, that if you put it with something that has a little bit of sweetness to it, like an off-dry Riesling or slightly sweet Lambrusco, oh, like with prunes and Lambrusco, that would be wonderful. Just kind of thinking outside the box, but keeping in mind that if the fruit is sweet and the wine is sweet, they're not going to overwhelm each other. They're going to complement each other. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. So we're talking about wine pairings with vegetarian and vegan cuisine from an article that was on livekindly.com. And you can also find a link to this article on my Facebook page, which is vinitasww on Facebook. We've talked about greens and salads, roasted vegetables, what to pair with fruits. The other really big category to talk about is legumes, which are beans, and then also things like peanuts, which are included in the category. And then we also need to talk a little bit about healthy fats, which is one of the other main categories when it comes to vegetarian and vegan cuisines. So about what to pair with bean-based dishes, they are suggesting earthy reds, which I think depending on what the meal is, all sorts of reds could go particularly well. I think for something on the lighter side that is a bean dish that maybe incorporates mushrooms, my go-to would totally be Pinot Noir because I love those earthy qualities and somewhat mushroomy qualities that you find in some lighter, drier Pinots, especially from Europe, which are fantastic with mushrooms. I think a lot of the earthiness too could overpower certain beans. I mean, 
there's certain nuts that goes great with, but a lot of beans, I'm feeling the earthiness could overpower the bean. Do you do you feel um, that, Kim? As well, as? I mean, there's a lot of traditional dishes like cassoulet that are really rich dishes that do incorporate beans. And I think depending on how you cook them, they, they get more intensity. So something like a, a lentil dish, and there are a lot of lentil dishes from the south of France that are really big and hearty without really needing any meat to it. And, and there are some fairly decently hefty red wines that can stand up to those dishes. I, you know, immediately think of like brown lentils with Syrah or something Rhone-based or a red from the Languedoc. You know, there's a lot that I think go particularly nicely. And it's just a different way of thinking about how to cook the beans so that you're not thinking like of just emptying can of cannellini beans, which can be a little bland, but in a different way of cooking them that really highlights the richness of the beans. And then they will become a really nice pairing for red wine. So this is one of those articles, Kim, that when you see it, you go a million different directions, right? <laughs> you look at it and just get all I'm confused. I'm just thinking, just, I, when I look at it, I'm thinking, okay, what someone comes to me asking, what's the go-to? You know, you then would say, uh, bean, what are you going to do with that bean? Right. How you, you know, you go the next level. Right. I think of those uh, other questions to ask. And you mentioned in a previous show about when you're talking about different wine terms, asking those leading questions so that people can give you more information about what they like and then you can find them a good bottle. And I tend to think about food that way too. So it's not just what are the ingredients, but what are you doing with it? What do you want the end result to be? How heavy is it going to be? What sauces are you going to put with it? Like all those other questions. So that's, I think, is one of the fun things for me when it comes to then thinking about the pairings to go with those. Yeah, that's right. you're right. But it's a lot of times people will come in looking for a wine and the first thing I'll say, you have it with food. And they look at me like, why would I have it with food? You know oh. what I mean? Like, so then it takes you a whole nother right. direction. Right. Or then you get the answer like, well, what is it? What are you going to have it with? I'm going to have it with chicken. It's like, oh my goodness, what kind of chicken? Yeah. You could go. You, they, it's all over the place. They had tips and then they had plant-based, but you had mentioned fats, Kim. Right. So fats, we're talking about oils and then ingredients like avocados. Certain nuts have higher oil content. So it's not that it's, yes, it's an ingredient, but you're not necessarily going to base a meal around the oils. They are an integral component of the dish. And I think more something that you have to think about texturally. So if you're having a dressing that's a vinaigrette, but it has a higher content of oil in there, if it's a mayonnaise of some sort, if you're doing something with avocados, which are oily, curries that are based on coconut, that changes the texture. And so therefore you have to think differently about what wines you're going to put with it. So like if you have something that has coconut base, but isn't too spicy, do you want to put a really light wine with that? Or is the wine going to be completely overwhelmed? So that would be the kind of thing that I would think about. Yeah, that was a great explanation because when I heard fats and oil, I wasn't really thinking clearly what wine, but then you talk about textures. There's a lot of varietals, say like a Tarantes, which has mm. that almost oily texture. Yeah, totally. So it would go great with something like this. And the thing about Tarantes too is it's that aromatic wine as well. So some of those floral notes do go well with spicy food. So that could be a really nice pairing with, with a curry or something. And a lot of the article, they mentioned just basic tips for food and wine pairing, which we love the touch base mm-hmm. about. One of them was the weight of the wine should match the weight of the food. Right. And they, they all these examples that we've been talking about follow this rule. So it's like, okay, if you have a lighter dish like those greens and salads that we were talking about, then 
you're going to pair it with a lighter wine. If you have a heavier dish based on beans, then you're going to want to pair it with a heavier wine. You know, matching weights. There aren't a whole lot real hard and fast rules for food and wine pairing these days, but matching weights is is definitely one of mine. And we always talk about when someone says they like certain things or they say something's dry, we, we don't think it's dry, but how do you react, Kim, when someone says to you, I'm having fish, I want a Cabernet? I mean, you they that's what they like. So right. a lot of times you have to proceed with caution. The weight thing, it's, it's a guide. You know, something light fish, you probably want to go with something light. You could go red, but you want to go light. So if someone says, but I like cab, how do you approach that? I would just explain that, yes, you might like Cabernet and you want to have fish for dinner and it's what you ordinarily drink. I'm not going to necessarily say don't do that, but I might explain why the wine is going to make the the fish taste not as good or maybe vice versa. Because there are some pairings that if you have them together, they're going to create an off-putting flavor. So maybe with white fish, the worst thing that's going to happen is that the wine is going to completely overwhelm the flavor of the fish and you're really not going to taste it. But if you were going to do that red wine with say I don't know mussels or shrimp or something there's going to be an interaction in your mouth where everything is just going to taste bad and tasting bad as opposed to just tasting overwhelmed is very different so like some red wines with some seafood does it creates this almost metallic flavor and I don't think that's pleasant I don't want you to experience it so if you're fine with not being able to taste your food because your wine is too heavy fine that's one thing that's your bag but if it's going to create an a, a nasty taste in your mouth, then I'm going to gently suggest that you choose something else. Yeah, it's always great that you guide people that way. To me, I always say, are you the only person eating this meal? Because if you're having (laughs) guests, I would say if you're having guests, I suggest maybe you go with more traditional pairing to make your guests a little comfortable. Or have two different wines. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You can drink what you like, but make sure that you're thinking thoughtfully about the other people that are also going to be enjoying the meal with you. Right. So the next thing they mentioned was similar flavor profile with the food and wine together. So this is the thing you always say, Kim, what goes together, grows together type of thing is when I think of how they said this. Mm -hmm. I think of this as kind of your philosophy when it comes to food and wine pairings, where if you have a citrusy wine, it can go with a citrusy food. So you're thinking more about the flavors and less about the textures, which for some things I think is actually a really smart, really smart idea. Like I have a dish that I make all the time that has a raspberry sauce. So I will always go out and look for a wine that has a little bit of a hint of raspberry to it. So we'll try to do a rosé, has a, a lighter, fruitier style to it to go with that dish. But I also really like that grows together, goes together philosophy. And you find this with a lot of things, especially when it comes to French cuisine, that pick the region that the dish came from and pick a wine from that place. And chances are you won't be disappointed. Yeah, it's great advice. If you're thinking, we always talk about the the cheese or Chianti and pasta. I mean, they're they're eating foods of the wines they're growing there. So you can always, if you're in a bind about what to pair with it, just think about where that food is from and that'll help you out a lot. Different profile uh, complement as well, they're saying, Kim. So something creamy with something tannic would work because it would cut fat. So it kind of goes with that heavy thing right. we were talking about earlier. And it also works with the sweeter wine with spicy food, which is one of my favorite suggestions to give to people who maybe aren't used to drinking off dry wines or slightly sweet wines. But I'm like, all right, have this with some spicy Thai food or put this with Indian food or something from the Japanese restaurant that has some 
wasabi with it. You know, put that wine that has a little bit of sweetness with something that has a little bit of spice, and they're just wonderful together. And the last thing Kim was our old friend, acid. <laughs> back to our is acidity. Key. And yes. that goes back to when we first started out with talking about leafy greens and the acidity with the dressing. It's very important. But this is food in general, I think, and especially when it comes to sauces. You'll often be told when you're finishing a sauce, have a little bit of lemon juice that you sprinkle on top of it, or a sauce that's finished with a little bit of maybe balsamic vinegar, the tomatoes, all sorts of ingredients, all those fruits that you might not necessarily think of as being your dose of acid, but that really are. So anything that's a citrus fruit or a lot of tropical fruits like pineapple will be that way. Thinking about different things that give you that little bit of brightness that really just perk up a dish, make it taste fresh. And yeah, we talk about our, our vinaigrettes all the time. That It's just a way to really wake up your palate, wake up the dish, and then often wine will be serving as your, your acid for your food. So that's why I think that wine goes so well with so many different things is because it's really just complementing everything that's on your plate and just waking up your palate and making everything taste fresher and better. And the article, it was all tips. It's it, These are suggestions and that's what right. we do all the time. We we tell you about tips and this is what we recommend. But if you, you like something with that we didn't say here, that's totally opposite, it's up to you, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. We're not, we're not here to dictate to you what you should be eating and drinking. But I thought that this one was a fun way of looking at a style of cooking that is becoming more and more popular. Not everybody is a vegetarian, certainly not everybody is a vegan, but a lot of people are trying to eat a little bit less meat. So it is, I think, a, a really nice, informative way of being able to incorporate your wine drinking into these types of dishes and sort of having your cake and eating it too. And I was surprised, Kim, I don't know if you picked up on this, but they did not mention pairing vegan foods with vegan wine. No, they didn't right? mention vegan so wines So that's kind of funny. Maybe yeah. they don't know about vegan wines, right? Maybe. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. The next article we'd like to talk to you about today is from msn.com about the secret trigger that makes you pick up your favorite bottle of wine. And Kim, I think this is just very interesting information always as a retailer I'm always looking for what turns people to pick up a bottle. We often talk about this marketing of wine and wine labels and what makes you want to buy a particular bottle as opposed to the bottle that's sitting right there next to it. So it's kind of fun to explore that those emotional triggers and those things that are going on in your brain that you don't even realize is happening when it comes to how you're going to purchase something. So there's many factors usually when selecting a wine. It could be the price, the vintage, the, the type of wine grade it is but many times people are basing things solely on labels right right and these companies know that you're doing that right so they take advantage of it in different ways i like the what they brought up here in that so much of marketing is based on what you are trying to say about yourself or how how they're trying to appeal to your own idea of your own identity which really kind of digging deep into the psychology behind marketing so um, this whole appealing to your 
emotions and in trying to get you to buy a certain bottle because how the bottle is presenting itself is trying to get you to feel a certain way about yourself. And I thought that that was really fascinating. And there was so many different things they, they talked about how they like to stand out on the shelf. And it could be color, labels, it could be texture, or, or lately it's been technology. Right. And also it's something that has always gone on, the he- the, the heft of the bottle, you know, the weight of the glass, the thickness of the glass. That is something that has always been a part of wine marketing, that people want to get you to buy a more expensive bottle. They tend to put it in a heavier glass because you feel like you're getting more bang for your buck if it's in this big, heavy, weighty bottle. I'm glad you mentioned that, Kim, because that is, I'm a sucker for that. Are you? When people, <laughs> I see a bottle and I, the first thing you do is you pick it up, right? You're looking you're like, at the Whoa. label and you're like, wow, they're spending some money for a better quality glass. I mean, there's some producers talking pennies for the glass they're spending. They're putting $100 wine in it. But if you're making a nice, thick glass bottle that uh, the underneath it, the punt, the P-U-N-T, is very big. So for sediment, it, it, to me, they're putting some effort into that packaging. Um, do you get that way? Is this something when you see a wine that triggers you that I, I, I want to taste it? Right? I definitely notice if the wine is in a is in a heavier bottle. I But I understand that sometimes that is used as a way to try to get me to think that the wine is better. So I, I, I think because I understand that that could be a reason why they're doing it, I try not to let it influence me, but it, I certainly do notice it. One thing that they did mention in this article that I don't think I've ever really consciously noticed was about the words on the label and that what they said was that more expensive American wines tend to say a whole lot less. And once I read that and thought about it, I was like, oh yeah, that is totally true. It is absolutely true. There are some more prestige wines or expensive wines or highly allocated wines being they're only made in smaller quantities, they're harder to get their hands on, that they might have zero words on the front of the label. It might just be a picture. It might just be a solid color. It might say very, very little on that front label. And then you have to turn it over and see who the producer is, what's the alcohol content. But I hadn't thought about that before, but it's totally true. I like when we pick up the same things from an article. And I think the less on the label goes back to when we recently talked about barcodes. They they even don't want to put a barcode yeah. on the label yeah, because very they feel true. it cheapens the wine itself. Yep. But then there's some real nice producers that they're proud to say as much as they can because they want to tell you what is in the wine. So I think it goes both ways, but it was an eye-opening that, yeah, that that's true. And then th- it's sad in a way because they expect you to know. It's almost like a French thinking label. You should know what's in here. Yeah, if I I'm actually saying, think it's a right? total opposite. Do, I, opposite I, of I'm not th- telling? Yeah. Like no, the French don't, they tell you, here's the region, you should know what's in it. Right. So but you, but they're giving you that information. So for a French label, I think that this is, this is sort of building on this idea of almost American radicalism, or this is still sort of the wild west of winemaking, where we're going to do whatever we want on this label because we don't have rules that we have to follow, as opposed to the French philosophy, which is if you understand the region and the background of this wine, we have all this info on the label and it's giving you tons of information, but you just have to know how to interpret that information. So you're saying like a, let's take, for example, a Napa producer, they don't have to tell you where it's from if they don't want to. Right. They so don't they have won't. to tell so you what the great variety Napa. is in the label. You know, this is my winery. You know where I'm from. You know what's in it. Kind of. Or, yeah. or, or if you don't know what's in it, who cares? Yeah. Like it's not that. important that you know what the blend is in this. What's important is that this wine has a name that is recognized. You want to pick it up. This is, it's almost more like a brand. Like this is, this 
is a Rolex. You're buying a Rolex. You know what you're getting with your Rolex. This is the Rolex of wine. Like I, kind of thinking yeah. about it that way. And I would say they know that it's already sold, so they don't right. care what's on the label, right? right? That's, everything's pre-sold already, so I, I can see that. Because they're so highly allocated. Whereas if you're looking at a good bottle of Burgundy, say you've got a bottle of, and I'm just thinking of, say, Von Romany, which is one of those higher allocated, really hard to get wines that are hundreds or maybe even thousands of dollars a bottle. Everything on that label, if you know enough about Burgundy, it's going to tell you tons of information about it. You, you know the grape variety. You know the producer. You know the exact location that it comes from, but only if you have that background information. So they're giving you the info, but they're assuming that you are a well-informed consumer. So this, I mean, it, it gets back to, do you want people to know your story from the label or do you expect them to know your story right. from the label, right? And I think it also comes down to winemakers trying to put themselves out there as something unique and something different. So they might be using, like you said, with technology, they're trying to do something different. They're trying to do something that is going to make them stand out on a shelf and draw the attention of the consumer, whether it be the weight of that bottle, whether it be the funkiness of that label, whether it be a label that you can hold up your cell phone in front of and it talks to you. You know, there's all of these different ways that producers are trying to stand out above the pack. And it just comes down to the idea that we might think that what's really important is what the wine tastes like and what's in the bottle, but that's that's really not how these bottles are going to get into your shopping cart. It's all about the marketing at the beginning. Yeah, and you were talking about the, the technology, the, this augmented reality where you hold your phone up to the label. And there was a trend for a while. People, they wanted to come up with new labels. I think, what were some of the other TV shows? The uh, Not Game of Thrones. Uh, the Walking Dead label? The Walking Dead yeah. label. So people who are fans, they wanted to get the different labels and do this technology. And lately, I've also seen where now they you take a picture of the label and the, the person on the label comes out and will dance with you and stuff. So technology is, is a way to trigger people to buy the product. But I think there's so much out there and everybody's different. Like you and I are different at what, what sets us off on looking at a wine. Right. So it's very interesting. But I wonder how much of that technology and that augmented reality stuff is just going to be like a phase. It, it really popular for a while and then maybe won't last for very long or gets transitioned and evolves into something else. So I, it's it's pretty interesting to, to look at and to watch. And I know because you like all this technology, I think that, that it's going to be really cool over the next couple of years to see what this changes into and what other innovations we see when it comes to wine labels. It's good you picked up on that because I've already seen it slow down. Have you? I've okay. already seen it. And they're now looking for what more can they do with that with that technology. Yeah, I'm curious to see how it's going to change and what the next step is going to be. Because honestly, I think that talking wine labels are a little bit hokey. And, and I don't know how receptive people are going to be to continue to use that technology. The latest thing I saw, Kim, is when you walk into a store, you could hold up your phone to the bottle and it then takes you the educational direction. It, it'll open up a, a door and it'll say, we're taking you to the Barossa Valley in Australia. This is where the wine is from. This is where the grapes look like. So it's more educational reality when you walk into a store. Oh, and I think that's a good direction to go, but mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to trigger me to buy that product. Right. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. Please visit us on Facebook at our page, which is at The Wonderful World of Wine. Leave us your comments and questions, and we will visit with you again next week. Cheers. Cheers.